for me, one of the big things that is missing in aviation now is proper leadership development. So any young pilot starting off a career in aviation, they might think they're only joining an airline as a co-pilot or maybe even as a third pilot where they don't fly for a couple of years. They're just there as an in-flight relief pilot when the primary pilots are resting. But that's the time that they should be learning and honing their leadership skills because it is absolutely vital. Today I'm talking to airline captain Lawrence Graham. Good afternoon in South Africa, Lawrence, and good morning from Vienna. Thank you, Petra. Good morning to you. It's so great to meet you here on Zoom. Thank you. Nice to nice to meet you, even if it is virtually. Thank you. Yeah. Now, um, Lawrence, I'm very interested in your story. You you're also a, a pilot, and you have a career in aviation. And it's for me very interesting how um, aviation I I've read is also a form of art, and it's not just about the design of the airplanes, but it's also the uh, flying of these airplanes. So um, where did your love for aviation start? How old were you? It started in a book, Petra. I can remember my parents when I was about eight years old giving me the book for Christmas on, I think it was on the history of flight. I've still got the book. Really? And there was just something in there that... um, just sparked a fascination with it. And it was literally from that moment, I started reading everything I could about aviation, building model aircraft, rushing outside whenever an aircraft flew over the house. And it just it just evolved from there. And I think I think with so many pilots, it's it doesn't matter where the exposure comes from, but when you're exposed to aviation and and the mysteries of aviation, because there is a fair amount of mystery attached to it. Um, it just becomes a drug, really. You just get uh, you you get captured by this. And I just grew up never really with the intention of becoming a pilot. I knew I wanted to fly, and I knew I would at some stage get to fly an aeroplane. But I had no real um, idea that it would become a lifelong profession for me and that I would have a 43-year career as a, as a pilot. Amazing. Mm. But, yeah, you're saying now that, uh, and also I assume when when you and I were younger, uh, this was also a greater fascination because it was still, I wouldn't say new, but it was still in South Africa a big deal. I remember I uh, my par- grandparents lived in Bedford View and near the airport, uh, in, in the Jan Smatze airport. And I can remember as a child also uh, us running out and watching the planes flying over the garden. But um, this fascination then, how did you, uh, I mean, how did you then decide that you wanted to be a pilot? Well, I'll tell you, um, it was more or less decided for me because of the fairly uh, limited academic skills that I had as a student in high school. (laughs) And when I'd I'd finished my schooling career, my headmaster had very diplomatically suggested to my parents that I probably wasn't university material and I should rather look for something else to do. Yes. And I'm not sure whether we'll come to to the the upshot of, of, of where that led me. But I'm not sure whether that was the stimulation or not. But I actually was born and and, and raised in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And uh, when when one left school at the age of 18, all 18-year-old males had to go and do uh, uh, military service. We were conscripted into the military or into the the police force. I was fortunate enough to join the, uh, the police force. And I spent 18 months there as a national serviceman. Um, it was the first time I'd earned money. And I now had this very small amount of money that I was getting every month. And I decided I was going to put it towards flying lessons. So by the time I had 
finished uh, my national service, I had obtained a private pilot's license. And um, now the, the, the decision came as to where do you think I should go? Should I, should I really try and go to university or should I just see where this takes me? And I had a good long conversation with my flying instructor. He was a wonderful man, very strict instructor, but, but very, very, um, very good at what he did. And when I broached the subject of should I become a commercial pilot or not, he said, oh, no, no, there's, there's no future in that. Don't, don't, even, don't even go down that road. You know, it's, mm. it's a dead-end occupation. You won't enjoy it at all. And um, I must tell you that about perhaps 25 years after that conversation, I happened to be flying one morning in a Boeing 747-400 from London back to Johannesburg. And I flew over the little airfield where I learned to fly. And on a whim, I tuned into the frequency, the radio frequency of the airfield. And lo and behold, I heard his voice on the radio. He was instructing somebody to, to fly and teaching them to fly. Oh, and I called him up and I said, Roger, do you remember me? Laurie, Laurie Graham. He said, yes, I do. Where are you? I said, I'm at 41,000 feet in a Boeing 747 oh. remember telling me that this was never going to work <laughs> Okay, first you gave me goosebumps because this is amazing that you could that you could do it this way and you know that sure. you could actually be in this aircraft and then sure. talk to him. Sure. Incredible, yeah. So so that's where it evolved. And then um I was very fortunate at the time the uh the Rhodesian government then became the Zimbabwean government had a um <clears throat> Uh, the Ministry of Internal Affairs had an aircraft section that they had a whole lot of light aircraft that they used to connect outlying communities with other centers in Zimbabwe. And I was fortunate enough, they didn't require commercial pilots, they just needed people with a PPL. And I applied for the job and I was given the job. And I was literally probably not, not more than 19 years old. And I had a flying job here. I was flying all day and every day. Very challenging flying. It was all in light aircraft. There were there were there were thirty of us actually throughout the country. We were all young young men, and um, we we operated these aircraft into the most horrendous places. Sometimes not even landing on airstrips, landing on roads if there was no airstrip, landing at night with nothing but a. Land Rover with its lights on at the end of the strip to to mm -hmm. guide us in, and quite remarkably, all of us all of us survived that era. But and I now that you're mentioning that, um, my uncle and aunt lived in Macheki in in Zimbabwe uh, in in the old Rhodesia, yeah. and um, they had a um, a number on their roof. They had a um, uh, yeah, it was a code on the roof, and they. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. I asked them about that, and they said it's when the when the planes fly over, and it was probably this. What you're talking about? It, it was could well be. It could have been. Oh. I, I don't recall it's that. A, but it's I, a call. It's a it's a a call sign. call. A code. Okay, yeah. right. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as you you may know, Zimbabwe is a very remote country. There are there are vastly remote areas you know, almost inaccessible by road and rail. So mm -hmm. the connection by air was really one was really important, especially for these outlying communities. Mm -hmm. And um, what a place for a young pilot to cut his teeth and, and learn his craft. I can because, imagine. Yeah. yeah, We were flying, I mean, some days I would do 15 takeoffs and landings, you know, short flights, half an hour, 20 minutes, whatever the case may be. But you became at one with that airplane you that it was literally an extension of yourself you'd learned to fly it uh, so well and uh, it was an absolutely wonderful foundation for my for my aviation career um yeah. i assume i assume those that what you're talking about and also because you're young um there's a there's a different um I don't know how to explain it, but when you're younger, you're also more daring and or you you don't think about things, you know, the way you th don't think about the dangers or the consequences. So probably also that 
way of flying, of just getting on with it, um, also build a type of skill. You're so right, uh, Petra. You know, when you when you're 19 years old and and you're a, you're a pilot, you're you're bulletproof. You believe that absolutely nothing can happen to you, and you attempt things and do things that later on in your career you look back on and you hang your head in disbelief that you even tried something like that. I mean, I wouldn't, knowing what I know about aviation now, if I were to go back and do that type of flying, I would be so much more conservative. But it's, um, yeah, it, it was an amazing time. It was just, and, and if I'm really honest about it, it was probably the best flying I ever did. It was the most enjoyable flying. And and I just loved the challenges of it. It was it was wonderful. And you were really flying the airplane. You know, modern aircraft you don't fly anymore. They are so technologically advanced. They've flown through the autopilot. They've got these enormously accurate navigation systems. We had none of that. It was it was just man and machine, and um, sometimes a map. We didn't. Sometimes we didn't even have the map. We would have to have to. Do our best to figure out where we were, you know. Mm. So uh, I, I was just really fortunate. In fact, every stage of my career, I was fortunate. Whenever I needed um, something, it was there. I don't know how that happened. I look back on it now, and I think, how did that ever happen to me? I have no mm. idea. So all the all the mm. paths just, uh, you know, uh, flow. Uh, flew into each other because all exactly. the, you you got to where you had to be but now exactly. from there so from there uh, how long did you do that how long did you fly? I did that for two and a half years and then the opportunity came to join the national airline Air, Air Rhodesia or Air Zimbabwe I can't remember whether the name had changed by then and as I said there were there were 30 of us that had now we'd gained our commercial pilot's license in the time that we'd spent flying for this organization, uh, commercial pilot's license and instrument rating. And we were invited to interview for the national airline. And all of us, all of us got in. We were all really? accepted. You know, there weren't many, you know, uh, Zimbabwe was a small country with a very small population at the time. And, and um, they, they needed pilots. Uh, now that they were accepted on the international stage, they were no longer pariahs as Rhodesia had been. Um, the airline was expanding. <clears throat> They'd acquired jet aircraft and they needed pilots. And we were all extremely lucky to be accepted into the airline. Well, so you, must have that... also, you must have also built up your hours then by all these, uh, the two and, yes. and a half years of, of flying. So yes, that yes. counted we... for it. It certainly counted for it. I mean, we had the experience and we had the qualifications. And uh, and quite honestly, I don't think there were many other pilots other than the Air Force pilots, most of whom were taken into the national airline anyway. Uh, there weren't really many other pilots in, in the country. There were there was a, a handful of charter pilots. And, uh, and they were really, that was about it. So to have this pool of experienced young guys that you could now train up um, as co-pilots flying these rather ancient airplanes, the Vickers Viscount, which was a four-engine turboprop, that was the first airline aircraft I flew. So I, I went from flying a single-engine airplane to this four-engine turboprop in the space of a year, and it was uh, wow. that was quite a that was quite a challenge. Then converted onto the Boeing seven hundred seven. So you know it was it was just once again being in the right place at the right time. So you had you have this experience of um, first of all, what I'm thinking about is uh, these young pilots that I've spoken to, they have to find a way to build their hours, and they have to find in they have to stay motivated, and they have to find money to build their hours. But you were in the situation where okay, so this was your job, so you probably didn't think about it that way. You just got on with it, but it wasn't the fact that oh, I have to now work for this amount of hours no and you know again I, I come back to how incredibly fortuitous we were that we started flying for the government all as 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 private pilots we were P, ppl qualified we, none of us had commercial licenses but 
because of the time we spent there, we were able to study and, and work our way up towards getting the commercial license. So, I mean, you know, these are not stories you hear often. Most, uh, as mm. you, you quite rightly say, most people really struggle mm. to build their flying hours towards their licenses. Most young pilots will go into instruction and and build their time yeah. as instructors. I did I did a bit of instruction, but it wasn't really for me. Um, I just wanted to fly the airplane. I didn't want to sit there and watch somebody else fly the airplane. <laughs> but now, to, if I if I hear your story, so you really went from the most basic way of flying, just a, a, you and in, in an aircraft. And then you, uh, if you talk about now when you started commercial flying, so it was also not the same type of airplanes that that uh, you fly now. So it's you, you also had that experience of um, not taking, the technology that's now available in an aircraft it's if i look back on the career petra it's staggering to think of the evolution of technology in the period that i i was an airline pilot when i when i started on 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 the viscount we had the absolute bare minimum of instrumentation we 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 just had a really basic amount of information there was no there were no navigation systems there was very limited um, instrument flying systems. And if I look at the aircraft that I concluded my career on, the Airbus A350, I mean, it's just, it's Amazing. it's unthinkable how the technology had changed in in the period that, uh, that I was there as, as, as an airline pilot. Just remarkable. <clears throat> and now... Um... Also, I spoke to, when I spoke to Kubis uh, Turin, um, yes. I saw a, um, a documentary of in, in the military, how they train the pilots. And I don't know how it's in commercial flying, but so basically these young pilots get trained in a simulator for long extended periods of time before they even get into the aircraft. Um, do you think... There's a there's um uh, something gets lost in this sense where it's not the real aircraft or do you think these it's because of the technology that now it needs to be this way that that uh, commercial pilots get trained more in the simulator than in in a real aircraft. So certainly in my in my day as a fledgling airline pilot, the the, the simulators were very rudimentary. I mean they were. They were more um, sort of training devices than than anything else, and and they didn't replicate um, flight in any shape or form. It, it was just a procedural trainer more than anything else. So you'd learn all of your procedures and your your standard operating procedures and how you would handle various emergencies and things, but but it bore no resemblance whatsoever to the aircraft. So when when you eventually wandered out to the flight line uh, under the guise of a, of a senior instructor. I mean, those those people were extraordinarily brave because we really knew nothing. I can remember very clearly, I've never forgotten it, I was flying this Viscount from Bulawayo up to Salisbury as it was, it's now Harare, one morning, and the captain turning to me and saying, Graham, you're a very lucky young man, you know? So I said, why is that, Captain? He said, you're so far behind this airplane, you're never going to die in a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to contend, they had to contend with these really inexperienced guys. And we mm. we had to learn to fly the airplane in the airplane. But today, mm. it's not really the case. Simulators are so remarkable. Um, you get what they call a level D simulator, which is what virtually all the big airlines are, are, are using today. It's a full motion simulator. They can replicate all the sights, the sounds, the feeling, sometimes the uh, uh, even the smells of things mm -hmm. that can happen in an airplane. Mm -hmm. So when you get into that simulator and you close the door, within 10 minutes of being there, you are flying the real aircraft. And there's very, very little difference between the simulator and the airplane. Um, 
by time you come out of the simulator on on a modern flight simulator, you're fairly well uh, versed on how this airplane is going to handle and how to fly it. And in fact, the first time you get to fly it is on an aircraft full of fair-paying passengers. Uh, so you'll have you'll have an instructor obviously with you, an experienced instructor. You'll climb into the airplane and uh, and you'll be you'll be very well versed on how to handle it. Well, if you're talking now about your, uh, so you were started off as a co-pilot, and mm. of course you had then the captain in the in the cockpit with you. Yes. Um, did you learn? Do you think it's also a different learning uh, a learning process that you had with because they also had their experiences that they brought with. Of course, for them it was also this whole evolution of how, where the the, the aircraft. The, the way the aircraft was in in those days so by the time he had this seniority he's also had this huge amount of experience from uh, with less flying with less uh, technology so do you think that that sort of that training that you got there that uh, one to one training is also uh, was also beneficial there's no question about it. I, I mean these these people that that we flew with uh, as young co-pilots were our mentors, every one of them. And some of them were very, well, the most of them were very positive, but there were there were a few who were very negative as well. They they, you would sit there and you would look across and you'd think to yourself, well, when my time comes, I'm not going to operate like this chap. I'm certainly not going to be as as um, neglectful as he is being of, of this airplane okay. so, mm -hmm. so so you learned the pros and cons of it mm -hmm. um we'll we'll come to this a bit later in the discussion but one of the for me one of the big things that is missing in aviation now is proper leadership development so any young pilot starting off a career in aviation they might think they're only joining an airline as a co-pilot, or maybe even as a third pilot where they don't fly for a couple of years, they're just there as an in-flight relief pilot when the primary pilots are resting. But that's the time that they should be learning and honing their leadership skills because it is absolutely vital that pilots today, so much more so than in my era, where we had to fly airplanes and didn't have to worry too much about managing them or managing a crew. I mean, you might have a captain, co-pilot, and three or maybe four cabin crew. Nowadays, you can have four pilots on board with 24 cabin crew in the back. So you've got a big team of people. You've got a vast responsibility. You've got a very high-performance machine. And there is a failing, I truly believe, in the aviation industry now that leadership skills are not being developed. You are supposed to somehow by osmosis in your time as a co-pilot, learn all of these skills from the people with whom you fly. And then they hand you this airplane one day and they say, right, you're the captain now, off you go. And I can remember my very first flight as a commander was so daunting. I, I didn't have any qualms about flying the airplane. I knew how to fly the airplane. I had absolutely no idea how to lead a team. I had no idea how to, to interact with people and judge people and motivate people and um, and the more I got into it uh, the more I realized where the gap in aviation is now and it's, it's now become now that I've I, I no longer fly it's become my mission in life now to improve leadership skills not just in pilots uh, believe me it's necessary throughout the industry right throughout the industry um, we have situation now where many airlines are run by non-flying people, people that have not come to grips with aviation. They might think they understand aviation, but they but they don't. And they, you can't expect them to if they're coming from an accountant background or a legal background or whatever the case may be. So um, I'm looking now, this is this is really what I'm involved with now, is getting promoting the the message that 
aviation needs to take a long, hard look at itself. I mean, we just have to look at the Boeing Corporation and see some of the things that have developed there in the last few years. And such an incredible organization and by all accounts seems to have lost its way somehow. Mm. So this is what's, what I think is necessary. Well, it's also in the, uh, you see that also in theaters, the moment uh, they put an, a, a director in a theater who had no, who might be a good marketer or a businessman, but he doesn't have the, the experience in, in theater, in the theater world, or or in in music, uh, it tends to be a disaster in a theater. So it's the same yeah. thing in in aviation. You need to have the people with the experience and the knowledge and the also the passion. I think um, in the lead. Absolutely right. I mean, your analogy of the theater. If you think of of a producer that doesn't understand the sound engineers. Uh, challenges and doesn't understand the lighting engineers' challenges and doesn't understand the front of house managers' challenges. If he if he hasn't had a foundational, uh, um, if he hasn't built a foundational competency in those elements, how can he possibly be a producer? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you've got to understand, and and even more so today, especially with with the technology that we've got around us. Our world is interconnected, whether we like it or not. We are interdependent on everything. I mean, here we are sitting thousands of miles apart having this conversation. Uh, There's no reason why we can't learn each other's roles and and become better managers and better leaders for it. But do you think also um, passengers understand uh you know this this amazing thing that, that this uh, if if they understand aviation at all because we tend to get onto flights and uh you know just complain about long hours or, or waiting hours and so on so and sometimes you hear okay so there was a there was a technical failure but then people get impatient uh, yet they get on the plane and expect to be on the other side, uh, safe on the other side. So there's this lack of knowledge where if you look at some of these uh, documentaries of where aviation started and how the first people got on these uh, these aircraft, it was a huge thing, you know, it was a huge experience and they were so grateful to get alive on the other side. But now we sort of take it for granted. And we want passengers to take it for granted. They mm-hmm. they don't need to know what's happening in terms of the technology and the process. And I think where, where we fail as an industry, it all comes down to communication. People are, are actually quite understanding as long as you communicate the problem and you don't try and hide behind some sort of excuse. If the airlines drop the ball and... You know, there's a technological, a technical problem or a staffing problem. Be honest about it and communicate. And I, I just found that again, I come back to this whole leadership role. It is so vital that you communicate with people and you tell people what's going on. And the more you do that, the more people accept what's happening. It's when communication breaks down and passengers are left sitting in an airplane for hours and after hour um, before departure, they're now running two hours late and they have no idea as to why this is happening. That's what causes the stress and and and, and rightly so. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I get stressed and, and irritated if, if, if I don't get told what's going on around me. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, as you well know, communication, very, very important part of leadership and, and, uh, these skills need to come into the industry now. We need to be re-looking at how we train pilots. We need to be building pilots from day one in human factor awareness, in in leadership training and skills, so that when they eventually sit down in the left-hand seat of that very large, very expensive, very fast aircraft, they're at ease with the whole operation, not just the technical aspect of it. So um, 
how do you see that happen? How do you, what, what do you suggest? What, what should change? What needs to change, it needs to start at the top because you can't expect various people within an organization to have good leadership skills if the, if the leadership at the top is lacking. So we rely, in the airline industry, we rely very heavily on the executive leadership and management to build an ethos of safety. Now, all the airlines will tell you, oh, yes, yeah, we've got a very strong safety culture and, and uh, we stand by our safety culture and yeah, it's very safe to fly with us. Whereas, in fact, that's probably not quite the case. Airlines are notoriously difficult entities to remain profitable. It is, it is enormously challenging for an airline to remain profitable, given the costs of the huge capital costs and the, and the maintenance costs and all the other costs that are inherent in, in, in operating airplanes. So understandably, airline leadership focuses on one thing, and that is keeping the, keeping the organization afloat. And sometimes that means let's not worry too much about the safety aspect of it. We'll accept the risks that we've got, um, but we've got to keep this organization going. The problem is, what, what is an acceptable risk and what isn't an acceptable risk? Now you've got these senior executives who don't possibly understand all the different nuances of the technical aspect of the operation, and they're deciding whether these risks are acceptable or not. They're not going to the frontline people. They're not going down and standing uh, in a snowy morning when it's minus 10 degrees outside and standing with a ground engineer and saying to him, what are your challenges here in getting the airplane away on time? Mm -hmm. They're not talking to the cabin crew who might have done a 16-hour flight, had one night's sleep and be expected to do another 16-hour flight. And they're not saying to them, what, what are your challenges? I want to know how we can help you and how we can make this operation safer. So the whole concept of, of, of leadership has become so narrow and it needs to be broadened. We need to build foundational knowledge, foundational competency in the industry. We need to take that foundational uh, competency. We need to build practical competencies out of that. I mean, flying and aviation is a very practical business. It's not an academic business. It's very practical and it's extremely dynamic. And if we're competent in those two aspects of it, we can build what they call reflexive competency, which is how do we handle changes that occur with that were totally unexpected? And that, believe me, is the airline environment. They, they, they talk about high reliability organizations and, and a, what they call a VUCA environment, which is a volatile, um, I can't remember what the U stands for now, uh, complex and ambiguous, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. This, it, it typifies the industry. Every single day you go to work, you might be flying the same route over and over again, but every flight is different. Every single day is a different set of challenges, a different airplane, a different, a different crew that you're flying with, different flying conditions, weather conditions, the, the load, the passenger load, whatever it may be. So if we can build knowledge of all of this, if I can get to understand what the maintenance engineers have to do, if I can understand what my executive management have to do to keep my organization going, if I can understand what the instructors have to do and what the administrative staff, the people that, that roster pilots and cabin crew, if I can understand all of those challenges, I'm so much better equipped as a leader to be able to do the job that's expected of me, be accountable for the aircraft that, that I'm accountable for, and at the same time, keep my passengers safe, which is really what it's all about. And I assume all these things you're talking about, I mean, you, you, you have to be in the aviation industry. You have to have flown to understand all these things because you had, you, uh, if, if I think of your career where you started, I mean, that was hands-on. It was you and the aircraft. So you yeah. understand that so much better. 
There's no question about it. You know, experience is a is a very vital part of it. But how do we supplement experience? We supplement experience with knowledge and training. And what's happening in a lot of a lot of airlines now, because there's this enormous shortage of pilots around the world. The latest Boeing report says that in the next 20 years, the world will need 649,000 pilots. What? Really? Where are we going to get these people from? The airline, the, the, the Air Forces don't train pilots anymore. It's become too expensive to learn to fly just as an individual. Nobody can really afford, especially young people, can't really afford to learn to fly anymore. So the airlines are forced now to start these cadet pilot training programs. And, of course, they are forced to keep the costs down as much as they possibly can. So that training program, as good and intensive as it may be, is as short as it can possibly be before they release that person onto the line. Now, here you've got a, a well-trained individual who's now been put into an aircraft. He, might, he or she might be flying with another inexperienced pilot, a captain, for instance, who, who might also be inexperienced. Now they get faced with some enormous challenge. And believe me, in aviation, you do face some incredible challenges. Um, how, do we, how do we correct that? How do we correct that? How do we supplement the experience that they should have had that, that those of us that, that grew up in aviation were fortunate enough to have? We do that through the right training programs and giving them the right foundation and teaching them way more than just the technical skills of how to handle an airplane. So it's coming back to the human factor again. Absolutely. It's all about, it is, aviation today is more about the human factor. I mean, if we just look at, look at this horrific accident that happened in Japan recently yeah. where the aircraft taxied onto the runway. You know, one can't preempt the the investigation, but on the face of it, it would seem to me that there was a failure of leadership there, that mm -hmm. the person that was responsible for positioning his aircraft onto the runway failed in his responsibility. He didn't make sure that the approach to that runway was clear. He didn't ensure that he had actually been given clearance by air traffic control to line up on the runway. And the consequences are horrendous. And, you know, in flying, you seldom get to make a second mistake, big mistake. Um, it's, it's unfortunately, that's what it is. And, and uh, you have to be on top of your game all the time, whether you're coming to the end of a, of a 17 hour flight, when you are absolutely exhausted, and you haven't slept the entire night, and now you've got to fly this big jet into a busy international airport in very inclement weather, sometimes with no visibility whatsoever. You need additional skills than just these, how do I fly the airplane skills? Well, this is now the, the a good time to ask this question and, and ask, can anybody fly? Because it's this thing where you say, well, uh, anybody can play the piano, but not every anybody can be a, a concert pianist. So technically, everybody can fly, but can you be a pilot? That's the question. Can everybody be a pilot? What is the no. what is the yeah? No, in 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 the same way that that I I like painting, but I'm not an artist. I love playing musical instruments, but I'm not a musician. Um, you 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 have to have an aptitude, a, a certain aptitude for for everything in life. Uh, you know th th that's just the way it is. And unfortunately, it does happen that people come through the system. Sometimes we pick it up quite early. Other times, it may take years to pick up. That a certain individual just doesn't have the aptitude for doing what what they should be doing. Um, remember too, flying is an unusual environment because we're in a three-dimensional environment most things that happen today are two-dimensional you know you can go left and right and forwards and backwards but with flying mm -hmm. you've got this three-dimensional aspect to it and you have to have spatial orientation you have to be able to think um in in this three-dimensional realm which is um it's not difficult 
but not everybody can do it. And I take the example of, of air traffic controllers. Now, to me, uh, and I'm saying this because my wife happens to be an air traffic controller, but she, if I look at the job that they do, where they are presented in a two-dimensional screen of what's going on in the area that they're controlling, but they have to think three-dimensionally. It is an unbelievable skill, that. And mm -hmm. I think way more people could become pilots than could become air traffic controllers. I think mm -hmm. air traffic controllers are the unsung heroes of aviation. Uh, if I listen to the stories and I watch what goes on in, in busy airspace, I don't think there are many people that could do a job like that. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they deserve an incredible amount of praise for what they do. Yeah, we, I you never think about that, you know, because they um because you don't see them, <laughs> you know. You don't see them, yeah. you don't hear from them, you have no concept of the vital role that they are playing in your safety. You you've got no idea. Um and believe me, and, and I'm not exaggerating, it is life and death stuff, you know. They they will they are wholly responsible for your safe conduct of your flight, of, of keeping you away from other aircraft, of keeping you away from the ground, of keeping you away from obstacles and ensuring the safety of the flight. I mean, the, the, the modern aviation system just could not exist without them. It just couldn't exist. Uh, uh, and yet none of us know about it. Mm. We're, not, we're not aware of it. Well, if so, you if you just look at New York Airport, sometimes if you look at a flight radar and you see all these aircraft coming in and and uh, lining up to fly, then yeah, I, I can just imagine how how do you organize something like that in your brain just to get that out there and and to get and, and it looks as though it's just like a like an automatic machine going. It does, and and believe me, all of that is attributed to the skill of the controller. They How they keep you separated from other aircraft, how they make sure that the separation between airplanes and the speed of the airplane and the height and the rate of climb and descent of the airplane is taken care of. You know, the pilot is really just there to follow their instructions and woe betide if you don't, because if I think of going into a place like London Heathrow at 6.30 in the morning, as we used to do, um, You've got three miles separation between aircraft, which means that the aircraft ahead of you has touched down, he's coming to a stop, but he still hasn't vacated the runway at the time that you're ready to land your airplane. Mm -hmm. So he is literally, I keep saying he, but obviously we're talking about he and yeah, she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are vacating the runway as you're going into the flare and landing your aircraft. And yeah. Best you be getting off that runway because right behind you there's there's another one another doing one. the same thing mm -hmm. and and it's it honestly it's like it's it's like an orchestra it's this mm -hmm. beautiful uh, it, it is absolutely beautiful to watch and and to experience to be a part of that and and realize you you're just you're just one of the violinists you're not the conductor of all of this. <laughs> <laughs> you you're mentioning that now because I spoke to Joanne as well. I can't remember her surname now. She's an, uh, also a pilot, and she said the same thing. And she said it's like, and then when this aircraft come uh, comes in and 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 parks, it's like this. Everything just happens, you know. You it's uh, you know the door the 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 stairs come and the or the you know all the things that happen there, and everybody knows they parked, and it's just. It just happens, you know? It's honestly, if you, to try and explain to lay people what needs to happen before an aircraft departs out of its parking bay, the number of people that are involved in making sure that that airplane leaves on time, properly maintained with the right passengers on board, with the right load sheet, with the correct amount of fuel, with the right crew, the, the correct luggage, the right freight that they've loaded, and all the various aspects, the people that refuel the airplane, the people that clean the airplane. These are these are all these unsung heroes of aviation that if one of them, just one of them, doesn't do their job, it all falls apart. Mm -hmm. So you are so reliant on all of these people to come together at 
the right time, do what's expected of them, so that at our departure time of 0600 hours, the doors are closed and you're able to click the microphone and tell the air traffic control tower we're ready for departure. And it all comes together. And it's exactly the same after landing, because remember, that airplane will be on the ground in New York or in London or in Frankfurt or Munich, wherever it may be. And it's only going to be there for an hour, maybe two hours. So in that period of time, that whole airplane has to now be cleaned, reserviced, maintained, restocked with all the, the, the items that, that the flight needs. A new fresh crew comes on board. It, it is Amazing. truly remarkable. It, yeah. it just runs on a script, just like reading music on a, on a sheet of music. And if one of the notes is out, the whole operation is discordant. <clears throat> But that's amazing that, you know, you, you, we never think of that it that way always. But now, interesting, I spoke to somebody who, um, and, and we he actually, we talked about the fact that I, and, and it's true that I think that uh, aviation is a form of art. But what he said that uh, when we had this discussion, he said that um, he believes that pilots have a specific intuition. You, you have to have this, there's, there's something that a pilot needs to have. Um, and, and he believes it's a type of intuition that you can uh, sense what to do next. So, so you, you are, the whole time you are um, in this environment, like you say, it's not, not, not one flight, it's, it's, this, it's the same, but you need to have this sort of intuition to know what to do next or or to read the environment, or to um, do you think that it's that this is true? So it's not so much. I don't think, in my in my opinion, I don't think it's so much an intuition. I come back to those three competencies I spoke mm. about just now: the foundational, and the practical, and the reflexive competency. If you've got a very solid foundational competency, if you know the technical aspects of your aeroplane, and you know all the technical aspects and operational aspects of getting this aeroplane prepared for flight. And I'm talking now about the load masters doing their job and the, 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 uh, the, the gate agents getting everybody on board. If you understand all of that and you're able to take that knowledge and apply it practically to getting this aeroplane ready and prepared in a safe and proper manner for flight, we can teach foundational competency and we can teach practical competency but we can't teach reflexive competency that comes from having a solid understanding of the other two mm -hmm. so add to that of course is experience i mean the more experience you have you you are able to look at a situation and say well i do remember something similar to this and i remember how we handled it on that occasion so maybe it's going to work on this occasion but not really because there are just so many variables there are so many variables in flying that you can't possibly imagine them all. And you can't possibly train a pilot for all of them. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that pilots are trained to do is to, is to manage hydraulic failures on airplanes. Aircraft controls are all operated hydraulically. Most of them today via a computer system. But the, the, the systems that move the controls are generally operated by hydraulics. And one of the most dangerous things that can happen in an airplane is a failure of the hydraulic system. So we spend a great deal of time in training and recurrent training being shown what happens if you lose one or two or maybe three hydraulic systems and how you're going to handle that. Now, as I said to you, I had a 43-year career, and in those 43 years, I never had one Hydraulic mm -hmm. failure. Mm -hmm. So although I was highly trained to manage a situation that should it happen, I would know how to handle it. It didn't happen. So we spend a great deal of time training pilots to handle a situation that quite honestly may never actually occur in their, in their careers until the day it does. And then if you don't have that training or you don't have the experience or you don't have that foundational and practical competency, you're not going to be able to, to perform. And that's sadly, we see that in, in so many aircraft safety incidents and safety events and accidents that something has happened that these pilots weren't prepared for. 
whether it was through their training or some other aspect of it. Yeah, and it's uh, with with the technology now, there's probably so many things that can go wrong and that that you have to be prepared for. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and look, we, we're blessed with the fact that that airplanes today are built in with these amazingly redundant systems. So you haven't got just one system. If it fails, there's always a backup, and that probably has a backup as well. And and also the the the, the technology is so advanced now that you just don't really get failures anymore. I mean, when I started out as an airline pilot, the reason we had four-engine airplanes was you you could quite honestly expect at some stage in the course of a year that one of those engines was going to fail somewhere really? along the line. Hmm. Well, engines just don't fail anymore. They just don't. Hmm. I mean, that's why we're flying twin-engined airplanes across oceans now. Hmm. You know, uh, uh, and for me, having come from this era of the four-engined transoceanic aircraft, I sit thousands of miles from land, and I'm very conscious of the fact that outside, I've only got two engines keeping me between <laughs> between where I sit and, and, a, and a very long swim home. So, mm-hmm. um, but the, the engine technology is just so incredible today and so reliable. Airplanes are very, very reliable. Mm-hmm. What but isn't this- so reliable are the, are the people involved. That's the um. problem. <clears throat> But um, this is so amazing. Your career it is so interesting. How where you came from, and and I'm just thinking this teacher that that didn't have much hope for you, um, <laughs> and where you are now, and yeah. what you've achieved. <laughs> so when I, when I when I'd finished my flying career mm-hmm. uh, and retired from flying, I sat back and I thought, you know what? There's one box I never got to tick, and that was the university box. Mm-hmm. So I went back to university. Really? And, yep. And mm-hmm. I'm very pleased and thrilled to say that just a week ago I finished my MBA. And congratulations. It's yeah, thank oh, you. Wow. Thank you very much. And uh so I'm feeling as if that chap probably spurred me on to doing it because he gave yeah. me the impetus to say, you know what, you you're no good, you won't make the grade. And it was Almost certainly, thanks to him, was a case of I'll show you. <laughs> you have to prove yourself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, all these stories I always hear talking to so many people. You you just always um, see how these how there was a flow in things. You know how one thing led to another, and then sometimes against all odds, somebody ended up going this route. And uh, this is with you as a story as well, you know, that Absolutely. how you got to become a pilot. And then now also your passion. This is so amazing that you um, that you still want to give something back in the aviation industry and that you, you have this insight of knowing that this is the problem. But now... Um, I know this is your passion, but what is the wish? What or what are the wishes then for you now with with everything you've done and, and how do you see the future now? So I'm very fortunate now to have paired with a an international business school. And we are starting a, a center for aviation leadership where we are going to try and get this message out now to all the role players in the industry, be they the regulators be they exec- executive management of organizations, right down to the pilots and the cabin crew, ev- anybody that may be involved in aviation. We want you to understand how important it is that you understand the interdependencies of all these various aspects of aviation so that you can become a better leader, so that you are equipped with the right tools and the right knowledge to be able to say, you know what, today we've We've got a really serious situation on our hands. How are we going to handle this? Um, for instance, let's have a look at that Malaysian flight, that Malaysian 370 that disappeared without a trace. Mm. I'm certainly not criticizing their management because how do you how do you approach something like that? How do you ever, as a manager or, or a leader, how are you equipped to handle a situation like that? And they, they they received a tremendous amount of criticism for the way it was managed. But you have to stop and say, this was something that had just 
was unconscionable. Nobody could believe that something like that could take place. Perhaps there might have been a different outcome had they been through the sort of uh, um, education that we espouse now, that building people up and giving them the insight and the knowledge and the understanding and the holistic approach of this whole industry, because it is, as I said to you, one, one part of the industry certainly cannot survive without the other. And, and we all need to understand each role player's function and, and, and how they fit together in this great big orchestra so that we play wonderful music and not discordant music. And like you say, it's understanding also, you know, the time that, that somebody needs to rest and, um, and the time that's, that it's not just about, you know, getting everything done and, and as soon as possible, but that, that that human factor is also involved. Absolutely, Petra. You know, one accident in aviation is one accident too many. And we do have the wherewithal to prevent these accidents. We do have the wherewithal to prevent safety events. But it takes a very, very conscious and concerted effort on behalf of certainly the leadership of the organization, but down to every person that has a role and responsibility within the industry. And um, unfortunately, because it is so technically orientated, People grow up in the industry focusing on their technical side of, of the operation, and they don't, they don't have an insight into all the other aspects of it. So this is what, what we're trying to now bridge that gap. We're trying to say, look, you need a better understanding. You may think you're a good airline manager. You may think you're a good airline executive. You may think you're a good pilot, but are you really? Because I discovered very, very quickly that although I was a safe pilot, and I'd like to think a good pilot, uh, when I started out as a leader, I, I wasn't. I, I really wasn't a very good leader and a very good commander. And those were things that I had to learn over time uh, through experience and make quite a few mistakes along the way. I want to now help the industry to not make those mistakes, to be aware of, of where the stumbling blocks are and how we can how we can uplift this whole industry without it costing uh, a great deal in fact very little really the return is is huge um the benefit is is enormous really but lawrence can somebody uh, contact you directly uh, or or can uh, does it have to be through an airline or is it some Say a pilot that's interested in what you're doing or what you're having to say, can they contact you directly? With the greatest of pleasure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Lawrence Graham uh, on LinkedIn. I have had to use the uh, honorific of Captain Lawrence Graham because it gives people an insight into to who I am and what I did. I don't really like these honorifics, but it's on there. And they are more than welcome to contact me. I, I spend a lot of time answering questions and queries on LinkedIn and helping people and guiding people. And we've had we've had a lot of interest shown from actually from around the world now. We've been speaking to people in Switzerland. We're speaking to people in uh, all over Africa and it's gathering pace. And they're starting to realize that, that the gaps that we have identified, they do exist. Mm -hmm. And they're easily bridged with the right sort of education but they're so important. They're so important, and and uh, this is this is really what it's all about. And what you said earlier about this now an opportunity for me to give back to to a, a, a career that was was so rewarding for me. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, I'll never lose that passion for aviation, but my passion has changed now to to helping people to love aviation like I did and to be as safe as possible and to make, make it a success. But that's wonderful. That's mm -hmm. really wonderful that you do that. Are you based, you are based in South Africa? Are you yes. um, in, in Johannesburg? In Johannesburg. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. But you well, know, nowadays yeah. we have with thanks to zoom, we have 
the ability Look, to connect with anybody anywhere exactly. in the world. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Our training programs are virtual. Uh, we mm. don't have to do face-to-face training anymore. We can do it virtually. And uh, and the discussions and all the workshops and all the study stuff, it's it's all available to anybody. That's amazing. That, and, and there's no excuses anymore. No, you know? no. Yeah, everybody can do it. That's it. But, um, Lawrence, I hope to meet you one day in person. Um, I would love to do South that. Africa. Yeah, that would be so great. And um, uh, I wish you all the best for this. This is amazing what you're doing, this passion. Thank and you, and you. I can hear in, in all everything you talk, uh, talked about and amazing career that you have. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, all the I best was, for you. I was truly blessed. And uh, and I would just hope that in 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 some small way i can make a contribution to everybody's uh role in in aviation because it is just an absolutely wonderful industry wonderful industry i think you you will be able to play a huge role because uh, just the insight that you have and the passion you know that that counts for so much Thank you, Petra. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for the Lovely opportunity. Lovely talking to you too, Lawrence. And thank Good. you so much for making the time to to talk to me. My pleasure. But, Always uh, a See you in South Africa soon. I hope so. Please let yeah. me know when you're going to be out here. I'd love to meet I you. I will. I will definitely. Thanks, Petra. Okay, Lawrence. Have a lovely afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye Thank now. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.